This is episode 161 of That Shakespeare Life. Today's episode is brought to you by Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership arm of That Shakespeare Life that offers you monthly digital history activity kits that let you try at home the history you learn about on the show. They work like science labs for history. Stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Grace Tiffany, author of the new novel, Gunpowder Percy. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. Friday night was mermaid night because of the fish suppers that were served, the high quality of the fish suppers. And the mermaid tavern was just near uh, Fish Street. So what would happen presumably was an upstairs room would be booked for the first Friday of the month. Dinner would be served. It would probably be paid for by whomever was hosting the event Healths would be toasted. They would probably take a a kind of joking, jesting, versified form. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Elizabethan England, on the corner of Friday Street and Bread Street was a fine dining drinking establishment called the Mermaid Tavern. The building itself burned down in the Great Fire of London in 1666, but the legend of this storied tavern lives on through the records of people like Ben Johnson and 17th century travel writer Thomas Coriat, who wrote about the Mermaid Tavern in the early 1600s when Shakespeare was in his late 40s to early 50s describing it as the meeting place of the Fraternity of Sereniacal Gentlemen, a drinking club that met on the first Friday of the month and is thought to include famous members, most with very close ties to William Shakespeare. Men like Ben Johnson, John Fletcher, Francis Beaumont were thought to have been members, and there are a few scholars who think William Shakespeare might have been among the members as well. Our guest this week, Michelle O'Callaghan, is a historical researcher into the history of English taverns and the author of the article, Patrons of the Mermaid Tavern. She joins us today to share the story of the Mermaid Tavern, what we can know about the fraternity of gentlemen who met there, and what her research concludes about whether Shakespeare might have attended. Michelle O'Callaghan is a professor of early modern literature and currently head of the Department of English Literature at the University of Reading. She has published extensively on early modern literature and culture from the ends of court and tavern societies to women's engagement in literary cultures. Her major books are The Shepherd's Nation, Jacobean, Spencerians, and Early Stuart Political Culture, 1612 to 1625, The English Wits, Literature and Sociability in Early Modern England that she joins us to talk about today, and Thomas Middleton, Renaissance dramatist, and most recently, Crafting Poetry Anthologies in Renaissance England, Early Modern Cultures of Recreation, which was published by Cambridge University Press in December of 2020. Hello, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. Michelle writes that the Mermaid Tavern attracted the patronage of, quote, the elite in the West End of early 17th century London, end quote. Michelle, what level of society was frequenting the mermaid during Shakespeare's lifetime? 
Okay, in order to answer this question, we first need to understand that there was a social hierarchy of drinking houses in this period based on the type of alcohol that was sold and drunk at these premises. So you might want to think about the current distinctions between an upmarket wine bar and a more popular pub. So at the bottom of the social scale was the ale house. And these are obviously more lowly establishments. And this is where working people met and they drank ale and beer. Now, taverns are cut above the ale houses because they sold wine only. Wine was imported, so it was more expensive. So the well-to-do drank wine because they could afford to. So the mermaid's a tavern. So it's going to be a lot more socially exclusive than the alehouse. And so those who could afford to drink there were the prosperous middle classes, that might be wealthy citizens, it might even be well-to-do tradesmen of London, and it's also going to be gentlemen as well. But the nobility would not have drunk at the mermaid or in taverns in general because they needed to consider their reputation and they just didn't socially mix in that way. So you wouldn't get dukes and earls, but you'd get plenty of sirs. The other thing that we need to know is that the mermaid tavern was incredibly well located and this is part of its appeal. So it's near to the steps to the Thames, so just across the river, the theatres. It's very near also to St Paul's Churchyard and as some of your listeners may know, booksellers set up their stalls in the churchyard of the cathedral. So St Paul's was the heart of the early modern book trade. The Mermaid was also near Cheapside, which was one of the most important trading streets in London. So what this means is that the the Mermaid Tavern was very much at the centre of fashionable London in this period. The Mermaid Tavern was patronized by the fraternity of Ceranical gentlemen, including Ben Johnson, but the landlord is listed as a man named William Williamson. Michelle, was Ben Johnson part owner of the Mermaid Tavern? Um, there's no evidence for this. And knowing Ben Johnson, I would think that it's incredibly unlikely. Johnson was a very convivial man, but he was always in need of money. He was in prison for debt in 1600 and during the period 1608 to 1612 when we know the Sereniacal fraternity was active, he was making money from his plays but I can't see Johnson investing in the tavern. I can't see him investing his money wisely, though I'm sure he did drink in the tavern and in that way he invested in the mermaid. But he's not a provident man like Shakespeare. He's not a canny investor. 
The Mermaid Tavern was of such high reputation that when people met there and got out of hand, they would be prosecuted for their crimes. Michelle, what happened to Sir Edmund Bannum when he brought his fellow roisters to the Mermaid Tavern in 1600? So what you're talking about is a case that was brought by the Lord Mayor and the City of London against Bainham and his associates, one of whom was called Badger. And they were fined £200, which is a lot of money, and they're also imprisoned. Why they were prosecuted is that they were drinking and gambling and demanding that music was played at the Mermaid until two o'clock in the morning. But I think that the reason why they were punished so severely is that when they leave the tavern, they leave the tavern with their rapiers drawn, and that's stated in in the case that's made against them. And then, more seriously, they then attack and wound the watch. These are early modern policemen on the beat. And as they do so, they utter these seditious words, Bainham, Sir Edmund Bainham, is a is a fascinating character. He was a Catholic and he called himself the captain of the damned crew. And the damned crew were presumably his mates that were parting with him at the Mermaid Tavern. And so these are upper class young men and they're known for heavy drinking, for fighting on the streets. And deliberately flouting the law because they saw themselves as being very much above the law. Now, Bainham is then part of the gunpowder plot led by Guy Fawkes to blow up Parliament in the early 17th century. And he's actually the one who is sent by the plotters to carry the message that the Parliament house has been blown up, which in fact it hasn't, but he's he's sent to carry this message to the Pope in Rome, and it's said that he's a very fit messenger for the devil. He never returns to England, not surprisingly, but we do hear about his bad behaviour on the continent. What you might also be interested to know is that Williamson was also brought before the court because he was at first suspected of keeping a disorderly house, but then he's acquitted on the basis that he has a reputation as an honest man who would not allow gaming and music in his house. And in fact, he is the one that calls the constable. So reputation is absolutely key here, both of Williamson as a reputable citizen of London, but also of the Mermaid Tavern as a reputable establishment. For modern ears, the phrase drinking club sounds analogous to the concept of a drinking game, and it's hardly something you might consider fitting for the upper echelons of Elizabethan society. Michelle, when you write that the Mermaid Tavern, quote, was a fashionable venue for guild banquets and for informal dining and drinking societies from at least the late 16th century, end quote, explain for us what kind of meeting was going on here the first Friday of the month when the fraternity of Serenical gentlemen were meeting. 
Well, there are two things going on here. Firstly, we need to know something about, in order to know about what happened at the mermaid, we need to know something about the layout of taverns. So taverns like the Mermaid Tavern had different sections. In the downstairs area, you had the public bar, which was open and upstairs you would have had these private rooms which were obviously more select and these rooms would be hired by groups for their private meetings and suppers so these are the much more exclusive spaces within the taverns and they would be fitted out with good furnishings the best glassware and and plate and food would also be served And it's thought that Friday night was mermaid night because of the fish suppers that were served, the high quality of the fish suppers. And the mermaid tavern was just near uh, Fish Street. So what would happen presumably was an upstairs room would be booked for the first Friday of the month. Dinner would be served. It would probably be paid for by whomever was hosting the event Healths would be toasted. They would probably take a a kind of joking, jesting, versified form. And the Sereniacal fraternity also seemed to have officers. We know that they had a steward, for example, and there were probably others. Now, the second thing that we need to know to understand what happened at the Mermaid Tavern is that the rituals of a dining club or a drinking club, that these rituals go back to the ancients. So they have this classical elite dimension. And in this classical tradition, poetry and wine go hand in hand. Wine frees the mind and inspires song. So at ancient Greek, banquets, a myrtle branch, perhaps it might have been called a club and that might where we get the term club from. This myrtle branch was passed from hand to hand and whoever had the branch would then sing or recite a lyric on a set topic or they would continue the lyric that had been started by the preceding person. And how you would impress the company was through how well you could improvise, how well you could dazzle the audience with your wit. And so obviously this would become competitive. It would be like a type of poetry competition. Now this may sound very elevated, but the more you drunk, obviously the more decorum went out the window and versifying could and did get very scurrilous and it got quite personal as well. There's lots of personal digs in the verse that is associated with the Sereniacal fraternity. So we know that the verse took this type of ritual form because of its structure, the surviving verse that we have that is associated with this group often takes the form of couplets or quatrains that are on a particular theme. So you can imagine that they're being passed from one to the other in this very collaborative social way. 
it sounds like a 16th century poetry slam, which we used to do in college. And I had no idea that we were being so classical <laughs> when we were doing that. Yes. So yes. why, why they, did they go with fraternity of tyrannical gentlemen? Where did the name come from? Well, I think fraternity comes from the idea of a guild. And there's a suggestion, as I said, that they had particular officers so it's this kind of more formal association. It has a bit more structure to it. But the name Seraniacal is thought to uh, come from the French for mermaid, Cyrene. Uh, and it's possible that the upstairs room at the Mermaid Tavern was actually painted with mermaids. And what we do know in the period is that these upstairs rooms at taverns did have wall paintings. There's a reference in a play, it's George Wilkins' Miseries of of an Enforced Marriage, which is published in 1608. And there is a scene there set at the Mitre Tavern and the waiter is running between upstairs rooms and one is called the dolphin room and the other is called the pomegranate room and possibly they had these names because one had pomegranates painted on the walls and the other one had dolphins and if we think of the apollo room at the devil and st dunstan's tavern where ben johnson and the sons of ben had held their meetings in the 1620s This had a bust of Apollo in the corner, hence it was called the Apollo Room. So it would make sense that uh, the Seraniacal fraternity who met at the Mermaid, that there were in fact mermaids painted on the walls. And we also know that Williamson, the landlord of the Mermaid, spent £300 in 1594 rebuilding and refurbishing the tavern probably to a very high standard so he might well have had the rooms painted then. Michelle writes that the fraternity of Seraniacal gentlemen was made up of several of the men from Lincoln's Inn and Middle Temple with the group potentially getting started at the 1597 to 98 Middle Temple revels. These revels were kind of an end of the year performance celebration not unlike modern homecoming at today's universities without the sports. But Michelle, was the fraternity of Seraniacal gentlemen essentially a group of college buddies getting together? To an extent. Many had known each other for a long time. They'd known each other at school, or they'd gone even gone to university together, and, and then many of them ended up together at the Inns of Court. But at the time that the Sereniacal Fraternity was active, they also had careers as lawyers, as member, members of parliament, as minor courtiers. There are a couple that are associated with the court of the young Prince Henry, and others were men of business. So these men are not necessarily at the highest political echelons. They're not the movers and shakers at the royal court. But a number of them, especially the key figures, Richard Martin, John Hoskins and Christopher Brooke, they were important political figures as lawyers 
and members of parliament so that they were movers and shakers at, at this slightly lower level. And I guess this is also the case with some groups of college friends. And if you think of fraternities and sororities at universities, they also help individuals to make important and often lifelong connections that then support them in their subsequent careers. So I guess you can make that type of analogies, analogy. These are group groups of educated men. I've seen the fraternity of Sereniacal gentlemen described as a literary club, mostly I think due to the fact that writers like Johnson and Shakespeare are today part of the English department at most universities with their plays being read instead of performed. So the posthumous reputation has a literary association. However, Michelle's research points out that this association is incorrect. Michelle, despite some of the strongest surviving records of this group and the members being verses of poetry written for Coriat's crudities published in 1611, why is it in correct to call this group a literary group? Well, I'll start by saying that there were literary clubs that are established later. So we can call the club that is associated with Ben Johnson and the Sons of Ben at the Apollo Room a literary club because their main purpose for gathering was to celebrate poetry and to act as literary arbiters, the, the judges of literary taste for their for their culture. And you also joined this club by writing a verse which you would then submit to Ben Johnson and then he would deem you a son of Ben or one of the tribe of Ben. But the Sereniacal fraternity were different. They did write poetry it's true. But this poetry was often satirical, it was topical, it was political. And the men who presided over this society, the key players, uh, Richard Martin and John Hoskins that I've mentioned before, as I've said, they're lawyers and members of parliament. They're also renowned for their wit. They're they're seen as the the greatest wits of the age. Now, John Donne is also part of this group. But again, poetry in this period was not his career. Others named by Coriat worked as secretaries to great men. As I've said, they're members of Prince Henry's court. They're lawyers and businessmen or they're men of learning like the antiquarian Sir Robert Cotton, but they would not define themselves through their poetry, nor would they define their gathering necessarily as a poetic gathering. Poetry is is the medium of their conviviality, but it's not the primary goal. One of the legends that survives about this group was started by William Gifford in the 19th century when he wrote that the fraternity was started by Sir Walter Riley. That's a pretty bold claim because Sir Walter Riley was a high-ranking member of Elizabethan society, and Gifford's suggestion has since been refuted by modern scholars on the grounds that someone of Riley's station would not be presiding over tavern meetings, as Michelle references today that 
it wasn't really catering to the super elite of Britain. However, the research we find in Michelle's paper about the history of the mermaids suggests that the tavern had a high reputation that might have been suitable for someone like Riley. So, Michelle, tell us, from what you found about the mermaid, is it plausible to think that Sir Walter Riley may have been involved? It is possible if, as I suspect, the fraternity was first formed around the time of the Middle Temple revels in 1597-98, because in these years, Rawley may well have been involved at some level. And I think you need to know something about these revels. Uh, These are grand revels and they're very elaborate and costly affairs. Performances took place over a number of days and they were incredibly grand. Basically, the form that they took was that a prince was elected who presided over the revels. He then chose his court and the revels were the business of this mock court. So you had speeches, you had presentations, you had diplomatic embassies from other courts, court trials, as well as dancing and plays, all with elaborate costuming and magnificent feasts. Now, in the case of the Middle Temple revels, the prince was called the Prince of Love, and this was the part that was taken by Richard Martin because he was so accomplished, because he was such a great wit and and also apparently a fantastic dancer. His orator was John Hoskins, who, as I've said, was also a celebrated wit. Now, during these revels, there were presentations at court and speeches delivered before the Queen, and members of the court visited the Middle Temple to watch the revels, and they also took part in the dancing. So there's this real crossover between the court and the Inns of Court at these events. And it was really the social event of Christmas. And we know that from later revels that rehearsals for these very grand revels took place in taverns over many months. And what we also know from the records is that Sir Walter Rawley was present at the Middle Temple revels. And he was interacting with the revellers. He was interacting with John Hoskins. He asked John Hoskins to to make a speech. So we have references to him in the surviving documents. Interestingly, two groups seem to form at these revels, one around Sir Walter Raleigh and the other around his rival, the Earl of Essex. And what we should also remember is that although Rawley was a courtier, he was only a gentleman. He was not a member of the old nobility like the Earl of Essex. So in terms of social status, he's a very similar standing to many of the Inns of Court men. So it's therefore entirely feasible that he would have attended these early tavern meetings, these these rehearsals for the revels, that then became the group that Coriat called the Sereniacal Fraternity. However, he definitely could not 
have attended these meetings at the Mermaid after 1603 because he's in prison pretty much until the 1620s when he's released and sent off his way and dies. That does limit one's social activities. Yes, (laughs) It does indeed. When it comes to figuring out whether Shakespeare would have been a part of this club, we have tangential evidence to connect him to the group. The man who served as a trustee on Shakespeare's purchase of the Blackfriars, William Johnson, was the apprentice to William Williamson, the landlord for the Mermaid Tavern. We also know that Shakespeare was intimately connected with Ben Johnson. Some even suggest Johnson can be fairly described in modern terms as Shakespeare's best friend. Michelle, while these pieces of evidence strongly associate Shakespeare with the fraternity of serenial gentlemen, where did you end up with your own conclusions after research? Searching the Mermaid Tavern. Do you think that Shakespeare could have been a member? I don't think that Shakespeare was a member of the Sereniacs at the time that Coriat lists the fraternity around 1608-1612, because he's just not one of their set at this time, unlike Johnson, who definitely was. That said, membership was probably quite fluid and changed over time. And so while there does seem to be a core group that we can trace back to these earlier revels, others probably joined in meetings at different points. And interestingly, Shakespeare's plays were performed at the Inns of Court revels. Comedy of Errors was performed, or at least we think it was performed, at the Inner Temple Revels in 1594, and Twelfth Night was performed at the Middle Temple Revels, but in 1602. It's likely that there was another play performed by professional players at the Middle Temple Revels in 1597-98, but we just don't have a record of it because those who recorded the revels just weren't interested in professional plays. They're interested in the revels. So it could have been a Shakespeare play, and if that's the case, this would have then brought Shakespeare into the orbit of these revels, and he therefore may have attended the rehearsals and the wit contests at the Mermaid Tavern for the preparations leading up event. Or perhaps he attended meetings of this group if, you know, this group was revived in the run-up to the 1602 Middle Temple Revels, at which we do know that, that Shakespeare's Twelfth Night was performed. So although I don't think he was one of the core members, he may well have attended and participated in the wit contests in the upstairs room at the Mermaid, particularly, I think, in in that period around the end of the 16th, the start of the 17th century. Unfortunately, we don't have any hard evidence. We just have circumstantial evidence and conjecture, but even that is interesting and productive. Certainly a fun idea to, to mull on, for sure. Yeah. What about the other members? Like you mentioned that we know for sure that Johnson was a member. Do we have Mm -hmm. records that survive today that do piece together who the definite members were? We have that letter to the Sereniacal gentleman from Thomas Corriott, which does list uh, those involved. 
And what is going on in the period around 1608, 1612 is that Thomas Coriat is doing a lot of fundraising for the next leg of his travels. He then heads off to the Middle East and to India. And so there's lots of convivial events. And we have another poem that, again, lists participants that dates from this period, 1611, that talks about a convivium philosophicum, a philosophical banquet that was held at the Mitre Tavern in 1611. And the Mitre and Mermaid Taverns, their names are are linked in in the period. And again, as I said, it lists those who are involved and there's quite a bit of overlap with the list of Sereniacal gentlemen. So what we can do is just uh, trace the connections between these men through letters, through other poems that, that are being dedicated to each other. And I'm actually quite excited because over the summer, I'm going to examine a PhD on the Sereniacal fraternity which has dug up new evidence on this group. So there is still evidence to find of various connections. Oh, that is very exciting. We'll look forward to hearing more about that. I know we're all very excited to explore further about the history of the Mermaid Tavern. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? You could start off with Adam Smythe's collection of essays. Uh, It's got a wonderful title, A Pleasing Sin, Drink and Conviviality in 17th Century England. That was published in 2004, I think. I'd also recommend an article by Mark Bland, and it's called Francis Beaumont's First Letters to Ben Johnson and the Mermaid Club, which is published in a journal called English Manuscript Studies, and it's published in 2005. You could also look at my book, uh, which is called The English Wits, Literature and Sociability in Early Modern England, and that focuses on this group, and that was published in 2010. There is also a very recent book, brilliant book by Lauren Working, which takes these ideas of clubbing to America in the 17th century, and that's called The Making of an Imperial Polity, Civility and America in the Jacobean Metropolis. And that's also published by Cambridge just last year. These are very exciting. Thank you so much. We'll link to these resources and definitely to Michelle's book in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned for the link for where to find those. Michelle, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Yes, I know desert islandists well. So actually, there's two answers to this. I have just read a fantastic new book when I was teaching uh, Spencer last term, and it's called Reading and Not Reading, The Fairy Queen. 
So maybe I'll take with me my Longman edition, my Longman annotated edition of Spencer's The Fairy Queen. But there is a more practical answer if I really was abandoned on a desert island. And then I would take an encyclopedia of the indigenous flora and fauna on the island so I would know what I could eat and what I should avoid. That is very practical and quite smart. I'm impressed. I I probably wouldn't have thought of that. (laughs) That, That's an excellent suggestion. You'll be well set up on your deserted island for sure. So Michelle, you mentioned some work you're doing over the summer, but what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I have actually just published a book which came out at Christmas. It's called uh, Crafting Poetry Anthologies in Renaissance England, which looks at the recreational role of books of poetry. So it's thinking about the way that poems were not only read, they're also performed. They were sung, they were read out loud, and they travelled through households and across social classes and brought men and women together. So I'm thinking about poetry as performance and how it brings different types of people together, but I'm also thinking about recreation and and the pleasures of the text as well. But I'm also working with a a colleague on a seminar series on the Inns of Court. And for this seminar series, I'll go back to thinking about the revels as well. That sounds like exciting stuff. I know we're looking forward to seeing your future research and keeping up with you. Michelle O'Callaghan, thank you so much for being here and taking us through the history of this exciting group and the Mermaid Tavern. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you. Be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode for images of the Mermaid Tavern and its famous members, along with quotes from Shakespeare's plays related to drinking clubs and all the links to Michelle's books and resources you can use to explore more history about the Mermaid Tavern. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 161. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP161. Don't forget that the video version of our show is streaming right now on YouTube completely free. You can watch that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you like video content for our show, then make sure you check out the digital streaming app for that Shakespeare life. We have animated plays, bonus interviews, documentaries, and more all packed into the membership area for our show. Members get the digital streaming app along with monthly history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare. Join us inside as we cook, play, and create our way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and download that app at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.